0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Disciple Types podcast. My name is Dave and this is my brother Andrew. Hey everybody. Now this is our 12th episode and it's a special one because it is the final episode of season one of the Disciple Types podcast. Is
1: that right, Andrew? That's right. But fear not because we have lots of future episodes planned for seasons two, three, and four. And really I'll go 12 seasons if people want to keep listening. But I felt that 12 is such an important number for Disciples that it makes sense to break it up into 12-episode seasons. And since so far we've covered the theory of the disciple types and each of the disciples, I think season one serves as a nice starting point for people to learn the basics if they're new to the podcast, and, and really before we get into the really deep, fun, and frankly kind of weird stuff
0: next season. And this is a perfect episode to serve as the season finale because it's, it's about the final four.
1: Yes, the final four disciples, the ones that aren't included in the quiz. And it's funny because of the thousands of comments I've gotten about the quiz from people all over the world, and I should mention that we have people listening to this podcast overseas now. So shout out to our listeners in Belgium, Serbia, and Cambodia. Uh, Hey, guys. Yeah, it's awesome that you guys are listening. Absolutely. Um, But the number one comment I've gotten is people hoping and praying that they wouldn't get Judas as their result their disciple. (laughs) And I just think that's hilarious.
0: Yeah. I saw one comment that they were like, please don't be Judas. Please don't be Judas. (laughs) Yeah. So why isn't Judas included in the quiz?
1: Uh, Well, good question. Uh, So as I was going through the disciples trying to learn about them, I realized that there were four, including Judas, where the information included in in the gospel is not very detailed or nuanced. So rather than make something up about them, I decided to just not include them but then as i started to uncover and learn more about the tetramorph and the four gospel writers and our aspects and how our aspects reflect the aspects of christ i realized that the little information that we did get about each of the other disciples was centered on exactly one of those aspects and not only was it centered on it it seemed to sum up their personalities Mm based on what we were given in the limited descriptions in the New Testament. Mm.
0: That's really interesting. So the very fact that so little information was given about them is in itself a kind of clue about their personalities.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And, and I don't want to draw sweeping conclusions about these guys, because that wouldn't be fair. But it does seem like they are pointing us in the direction of showing us what happens when a person fixates too much on their primary aspect at the expense of the other three aspects, particularly if they don't grow their
0: secondary aspect. So remind us again about primary and secondary aspects.
1: Sure, so our theory goes like this. Christ as portrayed in the Gospels has four distinct roles or aspects, and each of the four Gospels highlighted a different aspect. And since we humans are imperfect, we're imperfect shattered mirrors of God's true image, we reflect those four aspects imperfectly, in distorted proportions. So the aspects are tradition, experience, reason, and revelation. Those are the ways we can reflect who God is. But since our nature is shattered, we're only capable of developing one or maybe two of those aspects on our own, depending on our type. And so our strongest aspect is called our primary, and that is what most defines our thinking and behavior. But we can support that aspect with a secondary aspect that balances it and gives it context. Now, to go beyond that and become more Christ-like, we would need the Holy Spirit to transform us and make us more whole, more like Jesus. And the way that all happens is really, it's a mystery known only to God, and it's different for everybody. So I don't pretend to have any concrete advice about that. But I do believe that the first step on our journey toward letting the Holy Spirit transform us is to become more open to our secondary aspect. And here's a way to think about it. Your primary aspect is your comfort zone. It's cozy, you feel confident and competent when you're exercising it, but you can get tunnel vision or stuck in a rut. You're in charge when you're focusing on your primary aspect, so you don't feel this need to die to yourself and be transformed. So you need to be brought outside yourself to realize you don't have it all figured out. And that's where your secondary aspect really comes in. It takes you out of yourself and shows you a new way of looking at things. And anyone can do that. You don't need the Holy Spirit to start finding ways to develop your secondary aspect. If your secondary is experience, you can start getting outside more, Uh, you could socialize more, say yes to things that scare you. Uh, If your secondary is reason, take a pause and think before acting. You spend more time in quiet contemplation. Uh, You read opposing views that challenge your critical thinking. If your secondary is revelation, you can meditate and pray. Uh, You can share yourself emotionally with others so you can grow your relationships. And if your secondary is tradition, you may want to connect yourself to institutions, clubs, organizations that put expectations on you and draw you into their community. And for all of these things, finding other disciple types that exemplify the aspect that you're trying to emulate will always help you on that journey. The influence of their personality on your life through relationship will naturally help you grow. But the journey never stops. We can always be growing, being more balanced, and becoming more Christ like.
0: You're building a strong and very hopeful case that life is filled with grace and opportunities for growth. Would you be willing to give us some examples from your own life?
1: Sure, definitely. Um, so, my primary is reason. And I feel totally at home inside my head, developing theories, exploring things from the intellectual side of things. And case in point, this whole disciple types theory, it cooked inside my brain for a decade huh. before we are just now finally getting it out there for people to hear. And it's it, really that's because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. This this past year has been it's been really challenging for everybody, you know, physically, medically, but but also psychologically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Particularly outgoing people. Absolutely. And people that thrive on new experiences and traditions and routines. But for someone who prefers to be in his head like me, I was actually kind of really enjoying the social isolation, to be honest. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not that I was ever really alone because I've been part-time homeschooling two kids. But it turns out that even I have my limits to isolation. And it clicked what was missing for me in the midst of that isolation And I realized that I couldn't rely on just like incidental encounters or social invites Mm -hmm. to get that periodic experience fix. Yeah. I mean, everybody's
0: thresholds are different. I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. Please continue.
1: Um, So I was becoming stagnant and stuck inside my head. I really felt that. Uh, So I had to be more intentional about finding new experiences and broadening my horizons. So I've been finding little ways to connect more with people. And frankly, the experience of making this podcast has been a real leap for me. And it turns out that it's really just what I needed to stop from going crazy, pretty much.
0: For sure. I've had similar feelings. And that's not really surprising because we both have experience as our secondary aspect, where you may be content up to a point, as you say, spending time reasoning things through or tinkering with ideas. I can be similarly content dreaming things up, observing and making connections, often emotional ones, between different concepts or regarding relationships. But like you, all this up to a point. There is no doubt I need that experiential breath of fresh air, both figuratively and literally. Doing this podcast with you takes me out of my dream world, lets me hear the ideas of others, and it helps me put my ideas into action. And then also experiences like getting outside for a walk in the snow or tending my pet house plants until the weather warms up. These activities can make or break my day because they offer the balance I need and the structure I need in normal times, let alone during this time of unusual isolation. So how does all this about us relate to the other four disciples? Who are they, by the way? Who's left?
1: Right, we should probably say who they are. Um, And then we'll go into each one of them. So as I mentioned, Judas is one. Then we have James, the son of Zebedee. That's John's brother. Jude Thaddeus, that's Jesus's cousin. And he's also James, the just's brother. And then we have Simon, the zealot. So that that rounds out the four. And for each of these guys, we get either very one-sided information or just, just really one piece of information. Or we find that their life is sadly cut short before we can really see them grow and develop in the story. Interesting. So
0: let's start with the last one you mentioned. Let's begin with Simon the Zealot. Okay, good choice.
1: We literally only know one thing about Simon the Zealot, <laughs> and that's that he was, wait for it, a zealot. <laughs> that's, that's literally it. But that can actually tell us quite a bit if we allow ourselves to infer what is meant by the term zealot. And there's some confusion about his nickname. Matthew and Mark, instead of calling him the zealot, they call him Simon the Canaanian, Mm. which has been interpreted by some to mean he was from Canaan. Mm -hmm. uh, But it could also be derived from the Hebrew word for zealous. But I'm not really an expert on on all that. So we're going to go with Luke's naming of him as the zealot, Simon the zealot. And what is interesting about that is the zealots were a political party of sorts, Uh, that were really zealous, hence their name, in fighting against the Roman occupation. And at the time Luke was writing his gospel, the Zealots were notorious for having instigated the first Jewish-Roman war, which led to the destruction of the Second Temple. So Luke's Luke's name for Simon as a Zealot would have been a well-known term when he was writing, indicating that he was somehow of a similar mindset, if not directly involved, in the Zealot party. And so that leads us to examine the Zealots if we really kind of want, want to understand Simon. And for that, we can look to the contemporary historian Josephus, who describes the Zealots like this. He says, they agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, meaning agreeing with the Pharisees, which are a different political party. But they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and lord. And so another source we have about the Zealots, the Talmud also calls them the Bironim, I think I'm pronouncing that right, which translates as boorish, wild, or as ruffians. So we get this sense of, of the Zealots as fervently opposed to any restrictions on their boorish, undisciplined actions. Uh, and we know the Zealots set themselves apart from the other sects by their emphasis on violent insurrection, targeting Romans and Greeks and even Jews uh, who they viewed as collaborators. And most Jews were opposed to Roman occupation. I think that comes pretty clear in, in the gospel story, but there were different approaches about how to deal with it. But the Zealots weren't particularly religious or principled, and they took to the streets to fight their oppressors. They took action and fomented a rebellion that led to war, which then led to destruction of the temple. And to me, this kind of behavior is really the most extreme form of what can happen when someone focuses on experience at the expense of the other aspects. So basically, they're going on impulse. They're taking action without thinking about the potential consequences. And it doesn't mean that everyone who does this is definitely an experience-focused person or that every experience-minded person is going to take to the streets. But they are overrepresented in this kind of population. And we can see this in our modern context. People of all political stripes taking to the streets out of anger, but not really thinking about their end goal, what they want to get out of it. They just want to do something and, frankly, watch things burn. So to me, that's the danger of a hyper-focus on experience. And I don't mean to say that Simon the disciple was guilty of insurrection. We just don't know. What we do know is that Jesus chose him for a purpose. And to me, that shows that Jesus can use really anybody— no matter where we are in our spiritual formation. But we have to keep in mind that there are also real-world consequences to our impulsiveness. So someone who chooses to be held hostage by their insatiable hunger for new experiences, they should be seeking something that gives their drive for action a direction, a purpose, either through reason and strategy or through revelation and a deep moral grounding. So that if violence does eventually need to happen, or if it's deemed unavoidable, it won't be in vain or in wrath, but in service of true justice.
0: Hmm. It's so fascinating to see that human nature never changes. The same types of people and same political forces that were in play back then are still with us today.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right, so who's next? Let's talk about James, son of Zebedee, John's brother.
1: Yes, the other son of thunder. And you might say if John was the thunder, James was the lightning. And what I mean by that is they were both revelation focused and they both had fiery tempers and acid tongues. But John cooled off a bit once he started to foster his experience aspect uh, in order to temper his revelations. And if we remember back to John's episode, John was very judgmental and prideful at first. And he and James were always mentioned together, trying to For example, call fire down from heaven to destroy Jesus' enemy. (laughs) Right. Uh, Or trying to put themselves ahead of the other disciples. But once John started to hang out with Peter, he underwent a transformation. He became more open to new experiences that challenged his narrow focus on his unique revelations and what he viewed as his exceptionalism. And through that, he drew closer to Jesus, and he ended up being the only disciple who stayed with Jesus all the way to the cross, So James and John were inseparable at first, but somewhere along the line, they grew apart. So much so that James is barely mentioned by name toward the end of the gospel story. He shows up again in Acts, where he is briefly mentioned as the first disciple to be martyred by King Herod. And I find that interesting because he was clearly one of the three most prominent disciples along with John and Peter. They were there for a lot of important events. But John and Peter had earlier managed to talk their way out of trouble when they were arrested. But Herod chose James to make an example of. And in Acts it says, James's death met with approval among the Jews. So clearly James was not particularly well-liked uh, and he, he was an easy target. And Don't get me wrong, he still deserves our admiration and gratitude for being an early martyr and for keeping, really keeping the faith alive. There's no doubt that he was committed to the revelations and gospel of Jesus. But it's the way he presented them that likely turned people off. So if his early attitudes and his pride are any indicator, and if he did not grow out of them like John did, then James was probably viewed as self-righteous and antagonistic, probably. You can just imagine James standing defiantly before Herod, refusing to back down, maybe even threatening to call fire down, we don't know, but basically making Herod look weak if he didn't execute James. And that's the danger of a hyper focus on revelation. You can become so absolutely certain that you know the hidden truth, that you have the secret knowledge, that you're special and morally superior. And that just frankly ticks people off. (laughs) So for someone who is who's revelation focused, it's important to open yourself to new experiences that challenge your sense of self-importance, or to ground yourself in traditions that cause you to check your revelations against established doctrines and institutions. Otherwise, you could find yourself absolutely, totally convinced and convicted to act on a dream that you had that's really based in nothing other than your own imagination or ego. And again, James was called by Christ for a purpose. I don't mean to draw any firm conclusions about him or disparage his character at all. But I think his story can serve as a contrast to his brother John's, uh, who had a path of growth. And it can be a a sort of cautionary tale about the potential excesses of revelation.
0: I don't know how often I claim to have a monopoly on the truth, but I can certainly see the potential in my own life where if I don't get outside of myself and have new experiences and let others influence me, I can become quite morose, frankly. And it's a vicious cycle. My friend who's a Peter has one of the most chronic cases of FOMO I think ever recorded. I would say I have a much more minor case, but I've got it. And frankly, I think I can allow myself to grow out of touch with how much I value experience. I can let time just go by, and I don't realize what I'm missing out on. The bottom line is that turning inward infinitely is just not how we were built. So next up, let's talk about Jude.
1: What do we know about Jude? Well, if we remember back to our last episode on James the Just, Jude is one of the brothers or possibly cousins of Jesus. And like James the Just, who we call James the Justice in the Disciple Types, who is different from the James we just talked about, son of Zebedee, Jude was skeptical of Jesus at first. In John, it says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. We know Jude was also skeptical, most likely reason-oriented. And we get another clue to this during the Last Supper in John, where Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And to me, this is a clear sign of reason at work in Jude, because reason is universal, whereas Revelation is about secrets or truths revealed to a person that can then be shared and understood under the right circumstances. Reason is objective. Something that is logically true is true no matter what, no matter who is speaking it. So people that seek truth through reason want it to be known to the whole world. It's this idea of scientific discovery that should be open to questioning and scrutiny. So we could see Jude wanting Jesus to show himself to the whole world, not just to a chosen few. Uh, and then lastly, we learn even more about Jude from his epistle right near the end of the Bible, right before Revelation. And it's one of the shortest books in the Bible, just a short one-chapter letter. But even though it's short, it is straight fire. I don't know if you remember or you know remember reading it, but it's just brutal. So I just want to read the beginning of it. And I like how he starts here. It says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct As irrational animals do, will destroy them. I mean, that is harsh. Uh, And this book was chosen to be included in the Bible for a reason. These immoral people clearly needed to be called out, but it's the way that he does it, accusing them of relying on the strength of their own dreams. And that's a clear reference to Revelation there. And then where he says, they slander what they do not understand, and the things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. He's mm-hmm. straight up calling these people a bunch of unthinking, irrational animals. <laughs> and frankly, I get his exasperation. Sometimes sometimes I look around and I just get fed up with all the, the seeming idiocy I see in our culture. Uh, but you can see how Jude's method of communicating might be a bit counterproductive if his goal is to reach out and actually minister to these people. Because once you call someone a dumb animal, that kind of shuts down productive dialogue, I would think. (laughs) So I take the fact that Jude's influence seems relatively limited to this one letter as a cautionary tale against letting the desire for reason and rationality overtake you. I know I can be a bit brutal when I hear... What I think are foolish arguments. I can get pretty carried away as uh, as a Facebook warrior. Sometimes someone will say something and bait me, and I just I'll, I can go off a little bit. But I find that if I open myself to experience, I can better understand the people that I'm frustrated with, and I try to find some common ground to build on. And frankly, I if if I ever say something um, that I think is out of line. I really enjoy being able to apologize because I feel like that sets a really good example for our dialogue where it said, you know, I was wrong and I'm sorry. I feel like that's a very important thing for us all to be doing. But but experience is how I I deal with that. But the same is true for tradition. If you're a reason-oriented person but you think that tradition might be your secondary aspect, um, that can help your reason be oriented and grounded in arguments of shared principles that other people can embrace.
0: Yes, Andrew, I can remember having some discussions where you mentioned uh, wanting to temper yourself when debating with people, and I can definitely see a change in you. So then I guess that brings us finally to the infamous Judas Iscariot.
1: Ah, Judas. And what to say about Judas? So everybody knows him. He's notorious. He's basically the archetype of a bad, sneaky, underhanded backstabber. But just like all the other disciples, he was called for a purpose too. And I remember this, this funny story that mom, that our mom tells about you, Dave, uh, where you're, I guess you're only about five. But you knew the story of Judas, and you had this strange fascination and compassion for him because without Judas, Jesus never would have been crucified. So your young mind was thinking through this, and it really shows how revelation was at work in you even at a young age, that you were asking questions about basically predestination and the justice of of Judas. But I bring that up because it's a really complicated thing to talk about Judas from a theological perspective. We do know that Luke and John both tell us that Satan entered into Judas. So in some way he was possessed and there's not much we can infer about his personality once that happens because something supernatural is at work. But what we can do is look at what led up to that point. How did Judas become vulnerable to Satan's possession? And what we realize is that Judas was hyper-focused on tradition, money, and stability. Both Matthew and John tell the story uh, of how the disciples were upset when Mary anointed Jesus with this expensive perfume. And in Matthew, it says all the disciples were upset at the waste because the perfume could be sold and the money could be given to the poor. But in John, it says Judas specifically was upset because he was the keeper of the purse and he was stealing money from the general fund, not because he cared about the poor. But in both cases, that is a sign of a hyper-focus on tradition. In one instance, waste and extravagance are a threat to financial stability. And in the other instance— Judas is just straight up greedy, but in both instances, Judas shortly after, and in Matthew, it's literally the next verse. Judas goes to the chief priests looking to get paid for turning Jesus over to them. So we can see that it was Judas's obsession with stability and money that made him vulnerable to Satan's temptation and possession. And really the rest is history as it sets in motion the most consequential event in the whole history of the universe. But had Judas grounded his tradition with the moral purpose that comes from revelation, for example, he might've seen Satan's encroaching influence on him. Or if he had applied reason to his greedy impulses, he might've realized that things were not going to work out in his favor. As things pretty much unfolded predictably, Jesus is crucified, Judas gives back the money and then ends up killing himself out of guilt. So really, it's a cautionary tale if there's ever been one.
0: Wow. Yeah, Judas is one of those complex personalities, but I really like the way you separate his betrayal from the parts of his personality that made him vulnerable to those actions, because we're all vulnerable in some way, whether it's pride, like James, son of thunder, wrath, like Simon the zealot, intellectual arrogance, like Jude, or greed, like Judas, each of our aspects, if not kept in check, can turn our greatest strengths into our greatest liabilities. But as you've shown, there is a way to combat those tendencies, and that's
1: by developing our secondary aspect. Absolutely. And that's really well said. And I think that's a great note to end on, actually. But before we go, I just want to thank our listeners from all over the US and around the world. As we mentioned at the beginning, this is our last episode of season one, but we will definitely be having more episodes in season two after we take a short break of a few weeks. Season two is going to be a lot of fun. We've got a lot of different things planned.
0: Yeah, we sure do. We're going to drill down deeper into each disciple type, which I know I'll love, and I think I'm the most excited about some of the more unusual ideas we've
1: had. So I hope you join us for season two. I'm not exactly sure when those episodes will be out, so please, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to it. I know many people listen on Apple Podcasts, but you can can, uh, subscribe anywhere you listen, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, and that way you'll be notified when new episodes are available.
0: That's right, and you can also follow us on Instagram at DiscipleTypes4in1. And one other note, if you're a regular listener and you think other people would enjoy listening as well, A great way to get them interested is by sharing your quiz results on social media. So we would be extremely grateful if you would spread the word. And with that, we thank you for listening, and we'll see you in a few weeks.